Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Hello, my night owls and my early birds. Welcome to another edition of The More, The Merrier. For those of you who are new to the show, this is Donna G, your host for the hour. The More, The Merrier is a welcoming art show that covers primarily film and theater and the arts at large whenever possible. This edition of The More, The Merrier is Toronto International Film Festival 2020 coverage. And my offerings for today, I've got two ends of the filmmaking spectrum. I've got award-winning director Tiffany Xiong, best known for her Peabody award-winning film, The Apology. At the other end of the spectrum, I've got Vincent Tilanis, whose new film, non-student film, is screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. Both of these directors had films in the Shortcuts program at TIFF 2020, and I want to share those interviews with you today. So a seasoned filmmaker and a new filmmaker, both at this year's TIFF. Tiffany Xiong with Sing Me a Lullaby and Vincent Tilanis with Marlon Brando. And of course, I have music for you. Kicking things off will be Sharon Jones, whose documentary, The Late Sharon Jones, whose documentary by Barbara Koppel, screened at TIFF several years ago. Here is Sharon Jones with What Have You Done For Me Lately?
Dutch filmmaker Vincent T. Lannis joined me via Zoom to talk about his film Marlon Brando. The film screened as part of Shortcuts Program Number 1 at this year's Toronto International Film Festival. Your previous film was a student film. This film, Marlon Brando, is your first sort of non-student film that, that you've done. Can you share your feelings about your film, you know, gaining such traction? Um, it's been selected for Semaine de la Critique at Cannes, uh, the Dutch Film Festival, and now TIFF 2020. I mean, it feels like a proper coming out in a way. I think um, there's, a, there's this thing, especially at the Dutch Film School, where you uh, make a final film and that final film always kind of you know, feels like uh, like your debut. That's where you show the world what you've learned and gained at film school. And there's kind of like a lot of pressure towards it. But also it's kind of weird because uh, you are, uh, how do you say, you're graduating with six others. And, you know, um, uh, maybe as a student, you feel like this is your big moment, but as an industry, it's just a, a final student film. Um, so uh, graduating didn't have as much as a, as a, as a firework uh, feeling as I thought it would have to it. But that was very freeing actually after graduating because then you could basically do whatever you want. And no one was really uh, watching me at the time after I graduated. I had almost a two year period where I was pretty free to do because I didn't have much eyes on me. I didn't have much um, momentum or recognition yet. Uh, so then to make a film that is so small, because uh, the film is, 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 is filmed in my, in my old hometown, at my old high school and at my friends' homes, and it's all made so locally, to have then a, this film to be your uh, actual coming out to the world, actually your, 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 yeah, your handshake to, to, to not just the industry, but also just the audiences, it's, it's absolutely, um, it's almost breathtaking. I, you know, we experience now uh, this all these festivals digitally, but still the the amount of response that you get from audiences watching from their homes and 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 writing reviews, it's you feel that your film is being watched, and that is your biggest dream as a filmmaker. I think that you that you that you are able to find an audience. So it's it's beautiful. How were you notified that you were an official uh, Toronto International Film Festival selection? Um, I think because it kind of goes through other people before it gets to me um, because there is a festival agent now involved and of course my producers who are in contact mostly with the, with the Toronto uh, uh, programmers so I think they were we were notified about and shortlist and and eventually it seems a little dull but just an email saying congratulations you, you made it to the Toronto uh, Film Festival uh, two weeks in advance, they announced it to the world. Um, and that was sent to me or my producers called and they were like screaming. And well, I was screaming too. Where were you when you found out? <laughs> um, at my kitchen table uh, with my roommate. We were having dinner, I think. It was uh, pretty late. Um, and yeah, well, that's this thing, like my, especially for my roommate who also is experiencing all these things with me because we are stuck together together during quarantine so much it's us two celebrating all the time and I was <laughs> got a call and then it was again yay we're in Toronto we're not actually physically going but hell yeah the film is, so. and then I think we 
again, drank wine or probably would drink wine. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, you mentioned, you know, this pandemic and uh, you being stuck with your roommate. I want to yeah. go now to your film because this film, you know, features the characters of Cass and Naomi and yeah. they have a togetherness as well. Uh, yes. Can you can you share uh, that friendship with the audience? Well, yeah, it's. I was very um, drawn to write about uh, queer platonic relationships. Um, although my roommate, who is a straight male, um, uh, we are roommates for eight years now. Um, so we have a very tight bond. We share a lot. Um, and I just wanted to write about those closest friendships that are very platonic, but almost equal to romantic relationships or maybe superior in some cases to other romantic relations that both people in that platonic relationship have um and uh, as a gay man i think i have uh, or i try to um get a lot of inspiration from um uh, several friendships that i've had also in my uh, high school years and i don't know i don't know i i i didn't want to be too clear about what it is about especially queer platonic friendships that I think are more special. I don't know what it is. I mean, I can, um, I can, I can think of some reasons because you share maybe a history of feeling um, uh, outside the status quo or feeling uh, outside of um, uh, what what most of your um, kids at school are. But uh, yeah, there's something about it, and um, well, there's support. And yeah, yeah, I think I think I think that's definitely it. It's like, especially if you're in high school, it's like, it's the one friend who gets you, you know, who, right, who gets you, who, you know, you share uh, some common fears as well, you know, that you could be ostracized, but you know, you won't be with, with this person and you can truly be your your out self, your true self. Exactly. But it's only, I think it's just an exaggeration of many Mm -hmm. different forms in which this can uh, uh, apply. There are also... You know, um, it, these kind of this person gets you that also exists in some in straight platonic relationships, and so it's it's. I think what also I thought was interesting is about making this film and, and talking about it is like, oh wait, yes, it's I'm gonna make a film about queer characters, but it will apply to every single other uh, strong friendship where this feeling of this person really gets me applies. So therefore, you I felt an opportunity to write something that was. Um, uh, specific towards certain representation, but also universal for everyone to enjoy, uh, you know, and it doesn't matter how you identify or what kind of friendship that you've had um, and how, um, because exactly. there is exactly there is something completely universal about it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, and I enjoyed this specific story, uh, the, the friendship between uh, Cass and, Naomi, your actors have incredible chemistry. Can you tell me about them, yeah. please? Well, it's really fun. We started casting in my hometown um, to try to find, you know, you never know who, what brilliant kid would be walking around in the place you grew up. T- tell us and your hometown. It's Ni- the, the town is called Nijmegen. It's a, it's a kind of like a, a, a mediocre small city uh, in the east side of the country. It's the tenth biggest city of the country, so you know, growing up there, you would feel not necessarily included with the cool bunch of the other crowd in the mm-hmm. country. 
uh, but it was nice, you know, because you, it's, it's a little bit anonymous, but um, I don't know. I like that vibe. And I like the kids who grow up there because they have a different attitude than the, than the Amsterdam and the big city kids, you know? Right. Um, they're very free and they're very um, open to the world. So, so I w- we went to cast there because we wanted to shoot the film there. And we started casting at my own old high school where the, um, where the, uh, the shooting would also take place, where a lot of inspiration came from. And we had a casting call. I, if, I, yeah, if I'm correct, we had an open casting call for kids just to send in videos of themselves, talking about themselves. And um, this girl came and she sent in a video and we had this small uh, description of the story as well in the, uh, in the casting call. And she's like, yeah, well, um, my name is Jetska and uh, my best friend is named Koss. He's gay, I'm gay. Um, and she basically told our entire film's uh, a screenplay. And it's like, yeah, this kind of happened to me. And uh, I also went to your same high school. So, but, and we were like, gobsmacked that <laughs> almost we would find the exact female character that I wrote, exactly. wrote about on my own high school. Also, and she was so, she was so emoting, you know, as a director, you trying to find um, uh, new talent, you know, you look for the people that emote naturally, that kind of tell a story or that are not afraid to go even in front of a webcam and tell a story about, you know, her life. That was really cool. And then we had her uh, cast with someone else, a kid that we are watching. He's also from the same town. He was very interesting, very, uh, a little shy, but very, uh, 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 you were really drawn into his, his, his personality. And we put them together in a double casting and they were like, oh, hey, I know you. We didn't know, but they knew each other. And I, I mean, that is just, if you're casting, that is just the one thing. You cannot hope for it. You cannot, you cannot prepare for it. But when those two kind of people meet each other and they know each other vaguely, but still, we, we, we knew instantly that this was, the, this was the couple that we needed. And starting from then, we just started hanging out more, um, uh, me with the, two, with the two actors. We started doing escape rooms and, and do little trust exercises and, and work together. And they just uh, built this relationship that is still so real to this day. So uh, um, uh, every other month they'll visit each other um, and uh, they'll hang out, they'll come visit me, we'll talk about the film and their relationship is kind of real. And I think that is the one thing that we try to capture and I hope, uh, or I think therefore I'm, we found some kind of honesties because their relationship isn't as far off as depicted in the film. It's more that we as filmmakers try to depict the relationship that these two real people had because that matched the story of the screenplay. And then, yeah, it was that, that collaboration in that way. How do they feel that their film is, you know, going to be represented at Cannes and also now at TIFF and the Dutch Film Festival? Uh, they, um, they still didn't, I, I'm, they'll probably get angry when I say this, but as far as I, I think it's so funny, they don't really realize it yet, I think, because when we, when they were casted, they didn't really realize that they were going to be in a film. And I told them very many times in advance, like, hey guys, I got, there's, okay, now it's just us and some casting people, but in a few weeks, there will be like cameras and lighting people and grip. And they're like, oh yeah, sure. They're, I think they always thought about like, why would someone make a, a this is going to be like a small film. Why would someone make a film in this town from this high school? You know, it's going to be some, um, well, some, you know, so some student kids project. But then when they arrived on set the first day, they were kind of like gobsmacked in the sense that they didn't really realize that they were actually going to play in a film. And then when it 
finished, they didn't really, re and I showed it to them, they didn't really realize like, oh wait, it's a real story, it's a real film. And then we had a first premiere and they didn't really realize that 100 people will show up at the first premiere. And then we got to Canada, they didn't really realize, oh now other people, every single step is a completely new uh, ice bath <laughs> um, <laughs> for them. But yeah. I think they're excited because they never had any, um, they never really had any expectations, which is, I think, a great thing. You know, having zero expectations and going into this project, you think, oh, well, fine, I'll do this. It's project because it sounds interesting, um, makes it pure. And um, the, um, the younger, uh, the, the, the girl who plays Naomi, uh, Jetske, uh, she's now accepted at the Dutch Film School because she, this experience was so affirming of her for her to, uh, continue in film, so she's now in film school, and the uh, the the the, uh, uh, the kid who plays Kaz, Dain, uh, he's now making his first short film with his friends. So I think they're now getting into the entire experience, seeing what making a short film can do, not just to people, but also just to uh, yourself. Exactly. That's a, yeah. that's wonderful uh, for them. Now, um, the film explores, you know, this friendship in high school and uh, it evolves. But Marlon Brando uh, plays a, a, a role in the film, the image yeah, of Marlon exactly. Brando. Yeah. Why yeah. did you choose Marlon Brando? So there are several reasons. I think, um, so one of the relationships that this story is based on is uh, in my first year of college, I studied in Denmark for a year and I, there was this girl in my hallway and we became best friends really. And she had a post of Marlon Brando up her wall and she was just adoring Marlon Brando and she introduced me to him and I just also got smitten of course mm -hmm. with the image and his acting. And we both had that little, it kind of was an inside joke to us how much we loved Marlon Brando. Um, and when I was conceptualizing this idea and when I was thinking about writing this film, I love that Marlon Brando could represent something for these two characters also because I learned through research that Marlon Brando became a queer icon in the 50s, not just for gay men, um, because Marlon Brando embodies some kind of queerness, but also his individ in individualism, how do you say? Mm -hmm. um, the uh, uh, the uh, lesbian, uh, part of the lesbian community, um, uh, built the butch look uh, around Marlon Brando, um, being the individual person who who goes against the norm and who, who goes against um, the masses, and who is in who is in uh, maybe a loner but a proud loner, and who stands and rides his motorcycle and uh, into the horizon. So I love that that the gay community from 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 both sexes could adore this one person as an icon for themselves. So that was something that I took with me. And as a third reason, um, I think to me, because Marlon Brando to me stands for this, uh, of course, not just uh, this, this, yeah, this masculinity, but also um, a form of uh, independence. And when I looked at the, dra uh, the, the, the dramatic arc of the story is that this, that this, this male character costs, he needs to find an independence being so dependent on his best friend in the first act of the film and then needing to let go. Um, him becoming a Marlon Brando for me was a, was a symbolic theme. Um, so in the very last scene, when we see him depart um, into the horizon, uh, we dressed him in a in a simple T-shirt with blue jeans, and um, just as a small reference, like he's become Marlon Brando. This yeah. is not something. 
Mm-hmm. I that saw I that. To put in here. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. it's it's very it's very subtle. I'm a lot older than you, so I definitely yeah. <laughs> I got the uh, I got the the Marlon Brando reference and uh, yeah. the shorter haircut even. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was just did. something. And I, some younger generations, you know, they, they don't necessarily see it. But it, for me, it's it's just something for me that that you know tied it all together. I had all these. I had these three inspirations, and then it kind of just all made sense. Like ah, this is. Um, this is the story that we're telling. We're telling a story that that, that an arc towards some uh, a proud independence without, yeah, and 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 a proud of a friendship that was and might re- will be regained, but maybe that's not the story. Yeah, right. It's uh, it's left up to the viewer to decide. Yeah. you know exactly. what what happens next. But what happens next? It, it, but it it is a happy ending for both. Yeah. Because it's happening both. from both. I liked my, one of my mentors said, um, uh, who helped me write the screenplay, he's like, maybe this is the biggest, this is the most kind act of friendship. Um, him looking proudly towards her, being proud of her, being happy for her, where she is now, and leaving, leave, let, leaving her be for that moment and returning back, you know. Um, uh, that's the best thing that, that maybe at that point he could have done. And I, I, to me, it was very important so that this feeling would feel some, in some way positive, maybe bittersweet, but um, in my mind, uh, them uh, walking, uh, how do you say, meeting again is, is uh, very much a possibility. And I think it will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in about uh, 10 years, you, exactly. can do, you can do a follow-up. I know, I know. Like a, what like has a happened to these? Yeah, yeah, what has happened to these characters? Now you yeah. mentioned filming in your in friends' homes. What was yeah. that like? How did you get their permission? Well, when I was when I was um, writing these scenes and talking to my producers, we were like, okay, we had very little money, so we didn't have really money for a location scout person, and uh, we were like, okay, uh, what do we do? And well, these, um, because the film is based on um, my high school friends as well. And I was like, well, when I was writing, I had these kind of uh, bedrooms in mind because these are the people that, you know, uh, these characters represent. I can just call them. And I just called their parents who I haven't then seen in, you know, five years. Be like, hey, hi, Mrs. Uh, Baba. You know, it's, it's me, Vincent. I'm making a film and it's about, you know, without the friendship with your daughter and I wanted to know if her room is still intact and if we could shoot there and <laughs> people were so supportive to 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 work with us and I mean I'm so grateful uh, and I think that kind of also maybe helped to have some extra level of authenticity because we didn't have to like we didn't have to create much we could just walk into a space that was a real you know, teenagers room and, and, and uh, continue with that vibe that was already in that space. And we didn't have to um, come up with maybe things that would be too far-fetched. And I really like that. I really like that also uh, for the cast and crew or the people that would do set dressing or lighting, you know, they could just walk into a room like, oh yeah, this is, this is a teenager's room. Yeah. You know, how can we add, how can we build on top of this? Um, and just I, having then that support is amazing. Mm-hmm. I want to ask about your, the, the creative team because one of the things that I appreciate about film is, is costuming 
hair and costuming. Yeah. Um, can you tell me how you, can you first of all say the names of the hairdresser and the costumer and how you worked with them? Um, so the, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of, mo a lot of money. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the costuming comes down to uh, Sophie Bunning, a friend of mine who is a very uh, talented uh, stylist. Uh, the actors, both of them, and myself. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So we had a. I asked a. Um, I asked a friend. She's a, a. She's a stylist in every single, you know, every single part of life, and she had barely any time uh, to work on the project. But I really wanted her help, so I asked her, "Could you come in? Uh, could you read the script and come in with stuff that you might have uh, to build these characters from the costumes?" She said yes, and then I went to my closet, got all my clothes that I would think would fit the characters, and then I asked the actors to bring their stuff um, uh, out of their closet that they would thought would fit the characters. And we had a fitting day. Um, we just we rented we rented out a room, and it was just the four of us, uh, basically. Uh, how do you say? Uh, uh, putting in all our all our own clothes mm -hmm. uh, and just. Um, having a, a fun day with trying on clothes and she uh, Sophie uh, gave, gave a lot of her thoughts on just you know what works as a st stylistically and I just uh, listened and and we basically I think that day in one single day we set every single costume for every single scene we just took photos put them in a bag mm -hmm. and that was it we just worked from one day but it was really nice because you know we uh, we 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 took from our own own wardrobe in a sense, uh, but also these characters, these actors were so close to the uh, characters that we wanted to portray. We wanted to know, like, hey, what 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 would you wear? What are you comfortable in? Um, and that it was a collaborative experience uh, experience in in that sense, trying to find and build the characters through um, yeah your own <laughs> own yeah. wardrobe, and we. And we made some arcs for them too. So like the male character, he starts out with a very bright yellow uh, shirt and a red sweater. He's very colorful when he's with her. Mm -hmm. When he goes off to college, he loses his color. He loses his, 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 you know, his, his mate. So he loses his colors too. So he has his gray uh, sweaters more and more blues. And at the end, he's more neutral. He's just this bright white tee. So we had those kind of things to also work with. Um, and in the other sense, it was just, you know, what do you feel comfortable in? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the, the clothes have to, whether it's your own clothes or whether you go out and get clothes, they have to work for the story. Exactly. And yeah, and uh, these, the clothes that you, that you found and the, the stylist that helped you uh, did a good job. Very subtle, yeah. but, but, but nicely Thanks. done. Yeah. So you can't be here at the Toronto International Film no. Festival this year. No. Um, so what, what's that, what's that feeling like for you, you know, to have this, you know, huge moment that you can't then share in the host city? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's bittersweet. I think, I think the real, how do you say that feeling of, of, you know, the, of dread that was, that was only months ago, I think, um, when I realized that. Marlon Brando was being well received, and then again, because that momentum kind of started simultaneously when the when the lockdown was also progressing, that's when I felt the real dread. Like, oh, are you are you kidding me? You know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as time progressed, 
there's no one having it any better. <laughs> and that yeah. really works. Yeah. And, and <laughs> there's no one having it better. And, and I am, of course, you know, uh, I would love to be there. And I, I mean, I've heard the most amazing things from the city. I've heard the most amazing things from the festival. So, of course, I'm, I'm a little sad, but I mean, I'm getting to talk to you now and I'm getting to read all these amazing reviews online and, and talk to people. And oh, it's, a, it's a world that we're living in. And I think, I think my mentor kind of put it nicely that, you know, this is kind of good for, this, this might be kind of good for my ego too. Now there's still something to work for. Um, uh, it feels like, you know, uh, uh, maybe I have a chip on my shoulder to, 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 uh, uh, to make sure that my next films will do uh, equally, if not better. So in the future years and if we live in better times, uh, I can visit again and get the, um, uh, get that emotional cathartic, cathartic, you know, moment. Yeah. You can get uh, that, that moment of sharing with, you know, with, with your audience in person exactly, rather than virtually. Person. Yeah. Rather and the, person. and the good thing about TIFF is, you know, once you're in, they kind of, you know, follow to see what, what comes next. I think uh, it's so amazing how, so, how, what the feeling, feeling part of like already being part of like families is insane just by, uh, talking to the programmers already and and it's a, it's you can maybe make a case that's a little superficial but still we're we're making a bond i already feel i already feel uh, connected to to how their experience these past months have been and where i want to go talking about already talking about the projects that i'm working on now and so you really feel a genuine connection with them and a, gen, a genuine interest in where you're going and i think uh, using or being able to uh, use that uh, shared interest in, in each other to keep in contact and, and, and promote each other's work is already, yeah, it's already brilliant. Vincent, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank uh, you I for having me. Loved your film and looking forward to the next one. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so and, much. Love, and love please, you. please thank your actors for me as well. I will. I will. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vincent. Right here, right now, every day. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. There are so many children who've been separated from loved ones that I know for a fact that there will be many who can relate to the story of Tiffany Xiong's mom in her documentary, Sing Me a Lullaby. I had an opportunity during the Toronto International Film Festival to talk to the director about this very personal journey, the legacy of trauma and relationships with family. Here now is that interview. The film starts and you're video recording your mom. How does she feel about the camera being there? She just puts up with me. My mother has always been just an incredible supporter of whatever I was doing or up to. And that was 2005. I was off the heels of third year film school and um, wanting to take off on a trip. And she knew that I wanted to start filming in Toronto. And so she just kind of tolerates it. She's like, you know, like that's what her, she's just like, feels like, okay, that's what I, I do. I just 
you want to record, you just record. And I think after a while, she just got used to it. So with that opening scene that you see of my mother, um, she had already been kind of just used to me being around with the camera. And I think that's always been growing up. Um, I've always been kind of behind the camera and just capturing things, whether it's for a film or a school project or just personal documentation. Um, I, I've been kind of that that family member always behind the camera. So she she had gotten used to seeing that. However, this being a little bit different because um, it was more focused on her and I believe that was quite new. And, and what I found surprising when reviewing the footage a decade later was to read into the nuances around how, how, she, how her, what her body holds and, and seeing that pain as well, revisiting that. And that was, that was quite challenging. At the time in, in 2005, where the documentary begins, um, had your mother always cried about uh, not seeing her family for, at that time, 30 years? You know what? Um, she always held it in. And she just wouldn't talk much about it. And I always thought that it's because she didn't want to share it. But in fact, I realized she actually just didn't have much memory to share and that they were all quite fragmented. And I think leading up to um, my trip and leaving, um, I think the emotions were building up. In that in in that during the, that month or so, because we started having those conversations, um, but in the past when she did talk about it, there was always that silence. It was always the in between the sentences that I knew it was emotional for her to think about it, and and in many ways for her to brush over it. Um, if you see, there's a cut actually between in that opening scene where she actually walks off camera. Yes, and, and that's my mom would usually just walk away um, into the bathroom, into her room, and then she'll come back calm and collective. Like that's that's kind of been um, that's just her also her demeanor. Um, this uh, family gathering was just different because it was um, also one of the last few uh, family dinners we would have before my trip, and it was again um, because I think we were already talking about it. Popo is an interesting figure in your film. Did you never think to ask Popo about your mother's past? Like my mother, I think that I had also adopted this uncomfortableness of asking and talking about difficult things. I didn't think I would be. Um, and also my language and communication with my grandmother Popo is very, was very limited back then. It, I was 21 and my Mandarin was, it pretty much sounded like a 10 year old at the time. It was, and she only spoke Mandarin. And so the conversation could only go so far anyhow, but also inherently it is something that is difficult and uncomfortable to bring up because you you don't want to upset your elders and you don't want to bring up anything that will be taboo and 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 then result into any turmoil. And so I didn't think that I would feel that same way that my mother had always kind of insinuated and told me about. Um, but when I had the few um, on-camera interviews with my grandmother and talking about the past, that did come over me, that, feel, that uncomfortable feeling of not wanting to bring up 
the past and anything that would make my grandmother be upset or not want to talk about. Yes, um, myself being of uh, Caribbean background, there are certain things, no matter how old you are, you're still the child and there's certain things that you just don't ask an adult. Exactly. And, and you know, I'm, I'm far from being a child now, but there's still some things that I'm reluctant to, to talk about. I'm getting better living in this, you know, in, in Canada for, for so long since I was a child, but I'm getting better at that. Um, I bring up this, this cultural difference because what was it like for you growing up, never hearing from your mother as a child, you know, I love you and seeing the, you know, the open uh, displays of affection that, uh, you know, traditional Canadian kids see from their, from their family. I, th I think it's always so challenging for first gens and second gens um, to be born and raised in North America because we're constantly in this uh, duality of like being raised in a traditional Chinese family or a traditional like a, a family setting that is not from a North American background and and yet at the same time knowing that your parents are are immigrants and trying to adopt and adapt and assimilate in this way where they're trying to be more North American to get to feel acceptance. So you 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 have these two worlds of of having this encouragement by your family to be quote unquote more North American and in this way and speaking English as much as we can and just doing, you know, just adapting because that was, you know, in the 80s and early 90s for them. But at the same time, there's these traditional aspects that were also very present, which was don't, don't, uh, don't, there's a saying in Chinese, don't put out your dirty laundry for your neighbors to see, both figuratively and uh, literally. <laughs> and so like in, in many ways, it was always trying to navigate between the two. And however, going to school and seeing the affections of my peers with their parents when they got picked up, like that was always... It was weird because at that age, you know, when you're six, seven, eight, and you see your friends being hugged and kissed and I love you is being tossed all right, left and center. You're not thinking, well, this is the way that my mother um, shows her love. No, you think at first there's something wrong with you <laughs> and that, yeah. uh, or your mom is slightly broken and there needs to be wrong with my mother. Like, why doesn't she act like all the other mothers <laughs> that pick up their kids up? It's so true. It's so true. Um, it's like, why is her so tough? Like, where, where, where? And and so it took many, many years to understand that my mother doesn't hate me. Um, but I think that that's the challenges that you know most. Uh, I think most kids from, with immigrant parents have to go through and and learn and adopt the different ways that our parents express love. Yes. And, you know, going back to the language for you, you had to learn Mandarin, which even though you said you spoke it at, a, you know, the level of a 10 year old is still, you know, learning a language as an adult. How did you improve your Mandarin? You know, it's actually from my relationship with my grandmother. It, I, I hate to say it, mom and dad, it wasn't because of you two. You know, they're going to hate me for that. Um, it was spending time with my elders my grandmother and and there was no option but to speak Chinese with them or try to mm -hmm. and a lot of hand gestures and motioning for things and being around her and watching Chinese movies with her 
And then on top of that, I think my Mandarin really improved when I was actually making my feature length documentary, The Apology, because one of the grandmothers in our film for The Apology um, is in rural China. And I had to, I spent over four or five years with their family filming and documenting them. And so again, my, sometimes I didn't have a translator with me and my Mandarin improved vastly with them. And so what was so interesting is that, and I say this a lot that I, I needed to make I needed to make both films for them to exist. I needed to start singing me a lullaby by finding my own biological grandmother. And then I needed to make the apology and finish it um, to learn from these grandmothers, not just language, but also the space in which we hold these stories and, and how important it is to do that before it's too late. Yes. Uh, one of the scenes that I like uh, in the film is when you go to the door and you're, you say, um, I'm here to, 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 to see my mother's husband or <laughs> you say something like that. In the, oh, yes. in the oh my God, it's the worst. It was so <laughs> awful. I couldn't remember the, the word. And I ended up saying, and I only realized this um, only in the last couple of years, because I, I refused to watch the footage because it was like, no one wants to see their 21 year old self, right? And so <laughs> it was only in the last uh, couple of years filming this and, and really putting, you know, wrapping up the movie, going through all the archive footage, I was like, did I full on just say, I have a husband for you? Because <laughs> yes. that the word husband and letter is the it sounds exactly the same it's the different completely different words but they the the the, the accent sounds so similar that i had said husband and yeah. not letter so if you could imagine knocking on someone's door and being like hi you don't know me i'm from toronto and i have a husband for you right <laughs> They were one so of the many challenge. <laughs> I know exactly. It was like this is a new delivery service I'm providing. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you had such luck with with this film because you went at the right time for the database to be there in Taipei for you to find your grandmother. Yeah, no, you're you're right. Like if it was any time sooner, it would have been probably impossible. But I, I'd have to say. It, the generosity of people in Taipei and Taiwan, these, the women and the staff that was there, they were so empathetic and confused. And I, <laughs> I think they just, they thought I was so amusing. You know, really, it, it was so amusing to them because my Chinese was so crap. I had these names on a napkin. Like I literally showed up with this napkin <laughs> with names on it for them to, to, to type in. And it was so surreal for them that it, it, they went on that journey with me to, to make this work. And, you know, when we were there, um, other news out outlets actually got a hold of this story. So they also wanted to follow us along and they thought it was just, again, um, back then in 2005, this is, I found out this was right when Google Maps launched. Like they had just, it just got invented. Google, Google Earth, Google Maps. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't have it on our phones yet. Like we didn't have smartphones, but they had just like the actual um, database and, and the technology was invented in 2005. So it would be years later on where actually um, Google Maps and, and all that would be functional for our cell phones. <laughs> How easy 
um, it would be now to go and look for somebody off of like just Facebook and stuff like that. Right. So uh, 14 years of doing this, this film, why so long? I thought for a very long time after 2007, 2008, um, I had thought I had done something wrong. I thought I had made a mistake by going to find my mother's past, essentially, and and bringing up, um, I guess, a lot of the the painful stories. And, and the thing that really, at the end of the day, that I questioned um, was, you know, that notion and that saying, does the truth really set you free? Maybe ignorance is truly bliss. And what if the truth doesn't actually set you free? What if it brings you more pain? Than anything else would you go back to wanting to not know and those were those were the looming fears that I had that I had thought I'd done something right and and ambitiously you know um, something that my mother could be proud of and my family could be proud of but because of what was revealed because of all the layers and complexities around unearthing family history and reuniting with family. Um, it isn't your Hollywood ending, you know? It, it, it's, it's not like that in real life, you know? It, there are so much complexities to that, that for a young person, you immediately just think, shit, I did something wrong. What did I do? That was a mistake. Look how sad mom is. And I'm just going to bury this. And hopefully we could pretend that this never happened. Like there was, there was many years of, of feeling that guilt, um, but still documenting at the same time because I was filming The Apology. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. The Apology follows the lives of three former sex slaves during World War II. And they're all grandmothers now, still fighting for justice, still trying to come out to their own families. And it was through four years of production and filming and getting to know these elders that they taught me, no matter how painful, how difficult the truth is, we still need to know and family still needs to know because it enriches and, and tells a full story of who we are as people and the value in which that holds. And I saw the impact of what that looked like for their own family that inspired me to finish Sing Me a Lullaby. And, and that's, that's how the journey restarted again. And I, I started filming more and more and, and becoming more comfortable with also looking at the footage as well, because it took a long time to, to, to look at the things that we had documented as well. The body holds on to, to trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I can understand why you hesitated uh, to continue now that I know the, the backstory for you. Um, but how has your mother, uh, how is your mother doing now that she has, you know, faced this trauma and um, you've made this film, the world is seeing, is going to see it. How does she feel now about, about her past and the present? Um, I think my mom is and will always go on beyond a journey and how she acknowledges it and, and, and feels about it personally in terms of um, her relationship with um, biological as well as adopted family. 
Um, I think that that journey continues uh, well beyond the film being uh, finished and finally wrapped up. Um, it was, I do see how because we started making the film and be, while we were wrapping it up and because more people started understanding her story, I did notice how comfortable she started becoming in terms of talking about it and in this own way, this empowerment that like she owned like with her story. And, and I think because of the way that people even just reacted to the trailer and calling my mama and then her having full on conversations and, and there is this there now that there's a tool to share. Right. And I'm, I'm, I say this, like I made this film really to honor the legacy of my grandmothers and my mom and, and for, for my mom to now have, this piece to be able to share with people as well to start that conversation for them to know a bit more for her that might be hard for her to initially talk about but now she has this piece of documentation that can initiate conversations um it's helped her to to open up and and to talk about her her life journey as well something that she knew very very little about if you could imagine growing up only with fragments of, of memories that you never really knew about. I remember growing up and she would, when she did talk about her past, she always said the same thing. She said, before I met Popo, all of my childhood memory was always in the dark. I don't remember daylight. And the last memory I have of my siblings and my father was in a prison cell. And I don't know why we were there. But I, I remember that he was in trouble for something and I don't remember what it was. But after that, I was brought to Popo's house and I never saw my family again. And so you, you, I can't imagine living over 30 years at that time with all of these, like the mystery of it, you know, the mystery of why these things happen, where those pieces were and, and starting to create your own narratives to help you sleep at night. Because, you know, wondering would be too painful. And, and this last bit of memory that she had told me, and I think that this was really what really shocked me, was when she talked about her life and, and with Popo and their day-to-day -day life and going to school, she had always remembered there's like someone leaving her lollipops in the playground fence. There's always like this woman and, and like she would like leave, like leave her things. And, and my mom would talk about this, this vivid memory of, of these lollipops, right? And these, and these candies. You know how they always say don't take candies from a stranger? <laughs> well, yeah. when, and so like these were vivid things that later on, you know, we were able to all piece together for my mother. There are a lot of people who will watch this film and see themselves. Because my, my friend circle is, is pretty diverse. And I've heard stories of, you know, of kids being taken from homes and going to live with other relatives, not, not necessarily strange. Well, some did end up in, in the homes of strangers, you know, the 60s scoop with, with First Nations. But there are, there are children who are taken from their homes. And this trauma is never addressed. They never have the reconciliation. So um, have you 
for the people who've seen the rough cut of, of this film, have you heard from any of them who said, you know, that's kind of similar to, to my situation or somebody I know? Yes. Um, there, it's so interesting how such a personal story can be so universal to many people's um, lived experience as well. And, and even my own partner as well, who, you know, doesn't know their biological father you know, and got disconnected and, and just also around, you know, the, the immigration stories of, you know, being in North America, it's, there are many families that have been disconnected and separated. And, and so when you, when I do hear people connecting to it, it, it is something that I hope. And again, I, I, I acknowledge the privilege that I had to be able to go on this, this journey, you know, um, to be able to reconnect and, and, and try to find and seek. But I do hope that, you know, the time that we're in right now where we are trying to seek more connections to our, our past and our lineage, that, that we can, that this might, this film might be able to, 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 to be that spark, to ignite that curiosity, to go back on that search of, of even whether or not it's your own lineage, but also to, you know, communities as well. And I think that it's more important than ever for us to know that we're not alone and that stories um, in our own lineage exist long before us and that some things started before us that, um, that can better help us acknowledge one another. And I think that that was the greatest thing that happened in the process of making this film is, is acknowledging your loved ones in a way that you've never were able to see them before, before understanding um, of one's history and one's past. Um, you know, one thing while making this film that I talked a lot about in the process and during, before we were in Rough Cut was um, intergenerational trauma and how things lived and existed in our ancestors. And um, when I found out that, uh, <laughs> this is like, obviously, you know, can go into a debate, but when I found out that um, I existed in my grandmother, when my mother was a fetus in my grandmother's stomach, when I understood that fact, it was, it was you know, it, it made a lot of sense to me in understanding um, the connections that we have uh, with our elders, specifically with our grandmothers. Um, and when there was, when I started doing more research on intergenerational trauma and actually then specifically looking in, in East Asia, where, you know, children that um, experience, you know, uh, the cultural evolution and how their children's children have these residual traumas that come from that, even though they never physically experienced it, is fascinating to me, but also very heartbreaking. Because in certain cultures, we don't give space to having, um, you know, the space to talk about these types of difficult conversations, you know, or to be able to investigate where that comes from. And, and then often it might just result it into just like, you know, oh, you are just suffering from de depression right now. Your anxiety comes from this, just like what is present versus something that might have long existed in our lineage. And, and it, studies have shown that by going to the root and understanding like generations before you, allow us to heal, allow us to make better understanding connections to ourselves for us to have a path of healing. And 
not only with this film, but also just like life experience, I've, I've seen that to be true. Um, once we know more about our lineage and our history, um, and that's why it's so important for that not to get lost, not to, no matter where we are in this world and how displaced we have, we have been, you know, um, in families and communities, that we have to preserve our history. We have to preserve that because it, it will get us closer to healing. Right. Because the forgetting is also an act of erasure. Exactly. And um, we, we all need that. We all need to connect to our past um, because it does inform how people are behaving today. And I'm, I'm glad at the end of the film, you mentioned the fact that you've discovered your mother. Mm. <laughs> yes. yes, still discovering her. <laughs> <laughs> still discovering her and still acknowledging that sometimes her, you know, demeanor of uh, just the way she sometimes answers to things, you know, I was just like, well, that's my mom. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it now versus being frustrated. I'm, I'm, and I, I hope we all can with our mothers, with our loved ones, with just people in our circle, with our guardians, with our, our chosen family. There will always be moments of being so frustrated with how someone responds. are like, why are you like that? You know, um, I find it endearing now, you know, and they always say, Sometimes you need to be a mother yourself in order to understand your mother or whatever the, the saying is. I'm not a mother yet, but I feel like I've gone through so many stages of, of learning from multiple mothers um, and understanding the, the tremendous sacrifice mothers make for their families, you know, uh, mother type figures as well. And and that to me allows me to understand um, what my mother has did not get growing up and what that void does to somebody when they don't have that growing up. And, and I think we can all do that to better understand each other, not just in this, you know, familial like family settings, but just like people we don't know, people we might have differences with. You know, like, why are they, why do they act like that? And instead of, you know, the, the fear and the prejudice and, and the dis and, and like uh, separating yourselves from those people or anything like that, like we need to have better understanding of one another and where we come from in order for a truly change in a harmonious way to even start in that conversation. You know, it's not to say like, well, because we're so different, we need to just not you know, get along anymore, just work, just like work differently, work away from each other. But in many ways, there, there can be a lot of harmony in understanding the differences and where it's rooted from. And, and I think through that, uh, we can appreciate each other far more and actually start on a real path to healing together. So this festival, you won't be at TIFF in person. What are, what's your feeling about virtual TIFF this year? Oh, virtual TIFF. I, being born and raised in Toronto, I, I've experienced TIFF in all of its glitz and glams and a lot of, you know, cocktail hours and definitely those moments I will miss and reunions with other filmmakers that you haven't seen because they live abroad. Like all of, all of which I think we're all missing. Um, and, 
and really, I think, you know, one of my dreams was to premiere this film at TIFF, to have this hometown premiere because my mother, I wanted my mom to be on the stage and I wanted my mom to, to experience um, the audience watching this film. And so yet, I know that we, we don't have that opportunity in the TIFF type of way. Um, what it has taught me very quickly is how fast we're able to adapt and, and change and also just make the best out of it. And that, that's what I love about all of this at the same time is that, okay, well, it's the pandemic. Safety is number one. How are we going to do this? How do we recreate a, a scenario where we can have the, still that, that type of experience, but it will be different. And we found ways to host private screenings, um, you know, with, uh, with groups of people in a safe setting, abiding by all the COVID rules. And so that my mother can see and witness an audience experiencing her film on the big screen and, and doing a live Q and A's. We're, we're hosting a live Q and A on September 15th on Instagram so that strangers can ask her questions uh, as well and, and be able to make comments and she's able to have that experience as well. Um, so we're just finding ways of how we can still bring the beauty and the aspects of coming together and celebrating films and stories, but in a virtual way. And um, I do notice that even before TIFF and during this during lockdown and everything, it's like our focus has shifted in a real way. And we should not forget um, what that means to, to be more focused, be more attentive, and also understand what matters most um, and, and not be caught up um, with all of the superficial stuff of things and really appreciate um, family and health and, and our community and how we can be uh, better members of our community and to be there for one another. Like that that we all have to take away. Thank you all so much for tuning in to The More the Merrier. Hope you enjoyed that coverage of TIFF 2020. And do look for these films elsewhere over the next few months to see if they will pop up on a streaming platform for you. To get in touch with me, www.ciut.fm, The More the Merrier, or at TMTM with Donna G on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Leaving you now with another piece of music from a TIFF entry from Days Gone By, and this is from the film In the Mood for Love, and it is Yumiji's theme. Mm-hmm. 